We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Today we'll talk about the Supreme Court decisions, and there was more than one, the first on affirmative action and the other on religious freedom and employment. We'll also cover some of the other day's headlines and a conversation with Robert De- Delahunty, co-author of, along with John Yu, of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court is coming up in the second hour of today's program. So stay with us. A lot to, a lot ahead. Well, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor, they read their conflicting opinions on affirmative action today from the bench. Justices on the court can choose to read their opinions aloud from the bench in rare instances when they want to call special attention to their position. Thomas did so for his concurring opinion with the court's ruling against affirmative action, while Sotomayor, she read her own dissenting opinion. Today, and despite a lengthy interregnum, the Constitution prevails, Thomas declared in his opinion. The 75-year-old justice lauded Thursday's majority opinion overturning decades of U.S. judicial system, allowing colleges and universities to admit or reject applicants based on their race, but also offered his own individual input. I write separately to offer an originalist defense of the colorblind Constitution to explain further the flaws of the court's uh, Gruder jurist, uh, jurisprudence to declare that all forms of discrimination based on race, including so-called affirmative action, are prohibited under the Constitution. And so to emphasize the pernicious effect of all such discrimination. Meanwhile, Sotomayor read her own dissent against the majority opinion, a dissent joined by both the other liberal justices, Katanji Brown Jackson and Elena Kagan. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment enshrines a guarantee of racial equality, Sotomayor began. The court long ago concluded that this guarantee can be enforced through race-conscious means in a society that is not and has never been colorblind. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that Race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. In so holding, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle and and, um, endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. Well, the 6-3 ruling was split along traditional lines. Students for Fair Admissions, a student activist groups brought Cases against both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The group initially sued Harvard in 2014 in violating <clears throat> for violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin in any program or activity that receives federal funds or other federal financial assistance. 
The uh, complaint against Harvard alleged that the school's practices penalized Asian-American students, and it's demonstrably the case, and that they failed to employ race-neutral practices. The University of North Carolina case raised the issue of whether the school could reject the use of non-race-based practices without showing that they would bring down the university's academic quality or negatively impact the benefits gained from campus diversity. The court ruled for students for fair admissions in both cases. Meanwhile, President Biden on Thursday condemned the Supreme Court's decision that it is unconstitutional for universities to use race as a factor in uh, in admissions decisions and recommended that schools across the country find a workaround for a decision that he said ignored legal precedent. But of course, the Supreme Court sets legal precedent and has the authority to reverse uh, what they later consider a mistake. Today, the court once again walked away from decades of precedent. The president said, I strongly, strongly disagree with the court's decision. This is not a normal court, he said. I'm not sure what he meant by that um, on his way to a press conference. Well, the Supreme Court again ruled 6-3 in their decision that the use of race as a factor in admissions for college is a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Americans have long supported the ideas in the country's majority opinion. A survey finds that broad opposition to the use of racial preferences still exists. Results from a Pew Research survey released earlier this month found that 82 percent of respondents did not think that race or ethnicity should be a factor in college admissions. Seventy one percent of black respondents and 81 percent of Hispanic respondents agree. That again, ethnicity and race should not be considered. State voters have also rejected racial preferences at the ballot box. Californians have twice rejected preferences. First, with the passage of a measure known as Proposition 209 in 1996, and then again in the defeat of Proposition 16, which would have overturned Proposition 209 in 2020. In 2006, Michigan voters also voted to ban racial preferences. So public uh, opinion seems to have predated the Supreme Court decision announced earlier today. Meanwhile, Harvard's leadership declared in a statement that diversity and difference are essential to academic excellence. There's no question about that and vowed to preserve the university's essential values. The statement also highlighted a potential route by which Harvard could continue to account for race and admissions in some form. The court held that Harvard's college admission system does not comply with the principles of the Equal Protection Clause in Bolden and Um, embodied rather in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, the statement read. The court also ruled that colleges and universities may consider in admissions decisions and applicants' discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. We will certainly comply with the court's decision. So I think uh, affirmative action was certainly well intended but poorly executed in that it required discrimination in order to address discrimination. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of a Christian letter carrier who refused to work on Sundays because of his faith, arguing that the federally funded United States Postal Service violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, requiring employees to accommodate, rather employers, to accommodate the religious practices of their staff with limited exceptions. All nine justices on the bench, including progressive Justice Kagan Sotomayor and Brown Jackson, ruled against the United States Postal Service. Well, the case you might recall, we talked about it some time back, 
involved uh, Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian who believes for religious reasons that Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest. And while working for the Postal Service, he didn't work on Sundays, according to the court opinion authored by Justice Alito. His schedule remained this way until the Postal Service facilitated Sunday deliveries for Amazon. To avoid the requirement to work on Sundays, Groff transferred to a rural United States Postal Service station until it also started Sunday deliveries, forcing him to redistribute workload to other staff. After receiving progressive discipline uh, for failing to work on Sundays, Groff resigned and subsequently sued. Uh, Title VII's one loophole, the opinion noted, is if the accommodation of an employee's religious practice, such as observing a day of rest on Sunday, imposes an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's uh, business, forcing other employees to work overtime to compensate for Groff's day off does not meet that bar, Alito wrote. Observing the Sabbath day is critical to many faiths, a day ordained by God. No one should be forced to violate the Sabbath to hold a job. Randall Wegner of the Independent Law Center said one of the groups representing Groff and the Supreme Court voted in favor of that Christian postal worker. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour, Robert Delahunty, co-author along with John Yu of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, a timely interview on a day like today. Well, looking at other news, following the scent, Hunter Biden's legal trouble swept deeper into storm as president's son prepares to take the hot seat and did earlier today. He was expected to be deposed as part of a civil lawsuit brought by Delaware computer repair shop owner John Paul Mac Isaac. Uh, Mac Isaac filed a lawsuit against Biden in October of 22 in Delaware for defamation. In March, Biden filed a countersuit alleging Mac Isaac illicitly distributed his personal data and accused him of six counts of invasion of privacy. In 2020, he said that a man he believed to be Biden had dropped off three laptops at his store in April of 2019, only one of which was salvageable. While repairing that laptop, Mac Isaac said he discovered disturbing material. The, the uh, customer did not return for the laptop within 90 days and Mac Isaac uh, could not get in touch with him. Mac Isaac said the first uh, he first searched the emails by keyword in June or July of 2019. Student loan borrowers are anxiously awaiting the Supreme Court's decision on whether President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan will stand and the ruling could drop as early as, well, tomorrow. The high court is currently weighing whether the Biden administration can move forward with its contested plan to forgive up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for borrowers and up to $20,000 for those who received Pell grants. But regardless of how the justice is ruled, the suspicion uh, of federal uh, the suspension rather of federal student loan payments that began in the early days of the covid pandemic is soon coming to an end although some borrowers could eventually see their payments reduced or cut down to nothing if the supreme court determines that the president's 400 billion dollar handout is legal there's no timeline yet for when it could go into effect more than three years after the payments were paused and interest rates on the loans were reduced to zero percent in March of 2020 during the Trump administration and extended multiple times under Biden, student loan interest will begin accruing again on September 1st and payments will be due in October. The Department of Education uh, said earlier that this uh, earlier this month, rather, it will uh, notify the more than 40 million student loan borrowers well before the payments restart. The U.S. Coast Guard said Wednesday 
Presumed human remains were uh, recovered from the site of the Titan submersible wreckage. After consultation with international partner investigative agencies, the Marine Board of Investigation intends to transport the evidence uh, aboard a U.S. Coast Guard cutter to a port in the United States, where the MBI will be able to facilitate further analysis and testing. United States medical professionals will conduct a formal analysis of presumed human remains that have been carefully recovered within the wreckage at the site of the incident. According to the statement, the MBI will transport the evidence to a Coast Guard cutter, where it will then be taken to a port for analysis. New Jersey parents are threatening to take on state leadership after Governor Phil Murphy's administration filed a lawsuit against their school district for bolstering parental rights. He's suing the taxpayers. He's suing the people who he who don't agree with him. It's a political agenda. That's what Brian Mason, a father of seven, said in an interview. People are worried about the cost of the lawsuit. But what about when I sue Middleton because a guy goes into a locker room with my daughter? Three New Jersey districts, Middletown, Marlboro and um, English Town Regional are being sued by the state for adopting similar policies, which require teachers and administrators to alert parents if their kids uh, began using a different name, pronouns, or bathroom that contradicts their sex. The policies were approved by each district's Board of Education last Tuesday. Just 24 hours later, New Jersey Attorney General Matt Platkin, he filed the three emergency lawsuits claiming the districts were endangering the safety of transgender students by enacting the policies. An IRS whistleblower said critical steps in the federal investigation into Hunter Biden were put on the back burner as the 2020 presidential election approached and stressed that the most substantive felony charges were left off the table while doubling down on his claims that the entirety of the the Justice Department's probe into the president's son was influenced by politics. Whistleblower Gary Shapley Jr., who was the supervisor of the Hunter Biden investigation at the IRS, sat for an interview on Fox News with, uh, News with Brett Baer. Shapley alleged during the interview and in testimony before the House Ways and Means Committee that the Department of Justice prosecutors directed investigators to avoid asking witnesses questions about President Biden, chose not to collect search warrants related to the president's son and more. We weren't allowed to ask questions about dad. We weren't allowed to ask about the big guy. We weren't allowed to include certain names in document requests and search warrants, Shapley said. So, you know, we were precluded from following that line of questioning. Shapley said investigators were trying to follow the normal process and were trying to get to the bottom of the probe. The Biden administration's burdensome regulations have cost Americans about $10,000 per household, according to a new report which noted that figure could skyrocket if President Biden is reelected next year and uh, serves another four years. Casey Mulligan, a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, compared the regulatory records of President Biden and former President Trump and uh, Barack Obama in a new study published by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. As of the end of last year, according to the study, the Biden administration imposed new regulatory costs on American households and businesses at a pace That is surpassing that of the Obama administration during a comparable time period. Specifically, Mulligan writes that the Biden administration has so far been adding regulatory costs at a rate of $617 billion per year of rulemaking, not counting regulatory costs created by statutes and other non-rule regulatory actions. 
Mulligan calculates that the added costs of these Biden era rules finalized in 21 and 22 include both their current and expected future costs amount to about ninety six hundred dollars per household. These costs are spread over time rather than concentrated in the first year that the rules take effect and could spike significantly again if the president is reelected. Democratic Senator John Fetterman, who's consistently struggled through public events due to the aftermath of a stroke uh, he suffered more than a year ago, is falling to President Biden's unpopularity level in their home state of Pennsylvania. According to a Quinnipiac poll released on Wednesday, half the Keystone state voters disapprove of Fetterman's job handling, while only 39 percent approve. President Biden, a Scranton native, has a worse approval rating in the state, with 57 percent of Pennsylvanians disapproving of his job handling as president, while 39 percent approve. Voters view Fetterman much worse than his fellow statewide Democrats, the poll shows. Pennsylvania Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro garners 57 percent job approval rating, while 23 percent disapprove. Democratic Senator Bob Casey, meanwhile, also earns good marks from voters with 44 percent approval and 32 percent who disapprove of the job he's doing in office. The remaining percentages of each politician reflects individuals who didn't offer an opinion. Fetterman has floundered through Senate uh, hearings and other public events since taking office, often coming across incoherent due to his injuries from the stroke. His office has repeatedly slammed critics for drawing attention to the issues and uh, maintains he is fine outside the auditory procession problems. The issues exploded when Jeff Stein, a Washington Post economics reporter, admitted in May he amplified a misquote of Fetterman's office uh, that they provided to him. Meanwhile, Fetterman's office has quietly and significantly altered the senator's transcribed comments on several occasions to make him sound more coherent. Since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine in February of last year, Belarus has stood out as one of Moscow's few allies and the only European nation to offer Russia direct support in its war effort, including in its most recent endeavor to end a mutiny against the Kremlin. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said he helped bring about hope, a hopeful and peaceful resolution to an apparent mutiny by Wagner Group chief Yegevny Prezhkin. Okay, I say it different every single time, and I apologize. By offering him and his private military company troops a safe haven within Belarus borders in exchange for his exile from Russia. Lukashenko's claims have been questioned by regional experts and analysts alike who have asked why he stepped in and how his actions play into his deep allegiances to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Though Belarus and Russia share a long history together, Minsk, uh, has not always acted in Moscow's as its subservient. Belarus uh, declared its independence from the Soviet Union in August of 91, and by early December of that year, leaders from the country, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, met to sign the Belovja Accords. The agreement solidified the dissolution of the Soviet Union, a collapse that Putin would one day call the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. While Belarus and Russia have a shared past, their allegiances to one another have become far more pronounced in recent years. Belarus is a de facto vassal of Russia. Peter Ruff, senior fellow and director of the Center on Europe and Eurasia from the Hudson Institute, says... This um, asymmetry is not what Lukashenko had in mind when he first launched the Union State with Russia in the 1990s. He added in a reference to a 1999 agreement signed by Lukashenko and Putin's predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, to bolster Minsk 
and Moscow's defense and economic ties. The neighboring nations saw a shift in their geopolitical dynamic after Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014, prompting concern that uh, in Minsk that Putin uh, may have plans for other former Soviet states as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you coming up on our second hour, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. We'll talk with one of the authors, uh, Robert Dullahunty. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Also want to remind you the Pastors Masters Golf event is coming up on the 17th of July. We would love for you, if you're a pastor, a ministry leader, anyone who works hard for your church, you're invited to join us. It, this year is going to be at Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora, just south of Wilsonville. 18 holes of golf. It's a scramble. Starts at 8 a.m. with a breakfast proceeding at 7. And the amazing cost, $25 for 18 rounds of golf. There's also a lunch to follow. Space is limited. Register at kpdq.com. We hope to see you there. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, apparently the most common type of gynecological cancer in the U.S. has been on the rise in recent years, and there's no standard screening for it. Uterine cancer will affect about 66,200 women in 23 in the U.S., and around 13,000 will die from the disease per the American Cancer Society. And while we're seeing a downward trend to overall cancer cases, this particular form is one of the few types where we're seeing an upward trend, says Dr. Brian Slomovitz, director of the uh, oncology and co-chair of the Cancer Research Committee at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami. In an interview, we're anticipating that the number of deaths in the United States due to uterine cancer is soon going to outnumber the death due to ovarian cancer. He added to help raise awareness, the International Society of Gynecological Cancer announced the first ever uterine cancer awareness month in June. The IRS whistleblower contradicted um, A.G. Garland by maintaining the Hunter Biden received special attention, and he maintains that position. A Hunter Biden text demanded $10 million. This move to $5 million is completely new to me and is not unacceptable, obviously. is heard in quotes. Hunter Biden demanded $10 million from a Chinese business associate to further the interest of his joint venture with the Chinese Energy saying that the Bidens are the best I know at doing exactly what the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party linked firm wanted, according to a newly released WhatsApp message. The House Oversight Committee released the message dated August 3rd of 2017. The exchange is between Hunter and the CEFC associate Gong Wen Dong. Very simple, Hunter writes, 10 million per annum budget is to use to further the interest of the JV this um, move is $5 million, is completely new to me, and it's not acceptable, obviously. Hunter breaks down how expenditures and expenses will be determined in the consultation with his firms, uh, Owasco and Hudson West. The Oversight Committee says the Biden family cover-up in a WhatsApp exchange dated the 2017 tells the CEFC precisely what the committee is investigating. President Biden claims success in the economy as only 34 percent of Americans approve of his handling of the economy. The president made his pitch on Wednesday to a skeptical public that the U.S. economy is thriving under what he now touts as Bidenomics, even as a new poll showed that could be a hard sell as the foundation of his 2024 reelection campaign. In a major economic speech in Chicago, the president said his administration's efforts were sparking recovery after Republican policies had crushed America's middle class. But the poll said only one in three U.S. adults approve of his economic leadership. 
That's 20, or rather 34% figure is even lower than his overall approval rating of 41%, according to the survey from the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs. Data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicate that Americans are taking home less money for their work due to inflation, which spiked to an annual rate of 9.1% last June before dipping to a still elevated 4% in May as the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates in a bid to reduce consumer spending. Michigan has moved forward with a hate speech bill, making it a felony to make someone feel threatened. A new Michigan bill would make it a hate crime to cause someone to feel terrorized, frightened or threatened. The Michigan Hate Crimes Act designated HB 4474 passed in the state house on Tuesday and now goes before the Michigan Senate. It will replace the existing ethnic Intimidation Act and expand the categories of people protected by the law. The new bill would include sexual orientation and gender identity or expression as classes protected against intimidation. Distinguished Professor Emeritus William Wagner, a former federal judge and legal counsel in the U.S. Senate, joined the chorus of politicians and lawyers warning against the bill. Wagner said that under House Bill 4474, someone could listen to a speech such as a religious preacher or read a conservative writer and claim they're being intimidated because their perceived gender identity is under attack or they disagree. Under the legislation, intimidation and harassment could be up to the interpretation of the listener and a local prosecutor, according to Wagner, who added that the bill determines what is criminal after the action, the opposite of the due process requirement of the Constitution. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs signed executive orders to provide state officials opportunities for gender reassignment surgery at taxpayer expense. The Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs issued executive orders on Tuesday to guarantee transgender state employees access to gender transition surgery and to prohibit the use of state funding to support or promote so-called conversion therapy, which is typically talk therapy. Hobbs' order on gender transition surgery changes existing policy that prohibited the state's health plan from covering the surgeries. One of Hobbs' orders also prevents state agencies from cooperating with civil and criminal cases in states where gender transition treatment is illegal. The scope of Hobbs' orders is not entirely clear. While the governor aides uh, say the orders preempt any such prosecutions or limit on health care going forward, Hobbs and her administration were unable to provide an example of state resources or dollars supporting so-called conversion therapy. Daniel Penny pleaded not guilty to manslaughter uh, charges on Wednesday in connection with the high-profile chokehold death of Jordan Neely. The 24-year-old former Marine was arraigned on charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide after he was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury earlier this month. If convicted on both counts, Penny could face a sentence of up to 19 years in prison. At the arraignment, Penny only said the words not guilty while a crowd of people watched. Neely's father, um, Andre um, Zachary, attended. Uh, Penny is due to return to court on the 25th of October. Neely's family has uh, demanded Penny's charges do uh, be more severe, arguing that um, the action he took on the train was unjustified. Neely had a previous criminal record, including an arrest in August of 2015 for attempted kidnapping after he was seen dragging a seven-year-old girl down and uh, in Wood Street, he pleaded guilty to endangering the welfare of a child and was sentenced to four months in jail. He was later arrested again in 2019 for punching a 64 year old man in the face during a fight in Greenwich Village subway station. 
all the evidence is that we've seen our client acted reasonably under the circumstances and that he was justified in the actions he took. Attorney Stephen Razor said on May 1st, 2023, Daniel Penny defended his fellow travelers. Now it's our turn to defend Danny. Daniel won't be the only one on trial. The right and duty to defend one another will be on trial, too. The attorney went on to say our legal team is prepared to fight for Danny and for every New Yorker to defend themselves when faced with great harm. Razor went on to add. President Biden on Tuesday said he's not big on abortion as a practicing Catholic, but defended the reproductive rights that were previously granted under Roe versus Wade. I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm not big on abortion. But guess what? Roe versus Wade got it right, Biden said at a fundraiser with about 100 donors in Chevy Chase, Maryland. He also criticized states that have passed laws restricting access to abortion. More than 20 have passed such laws since the Supreme Court ended the roughly 50-year precedent set by Roe, guaranteeing a right to an abortion from the Constitution. Public opinion about when abortion should be allowed largely depends on what stage the the pregnancy uh, is. A poll conducted by Gallup in May found 69% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in the first trimester. 37% say it should be allowed in the second trimester and 22% say it should be legal in the last three months of pregnancy. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and a reminder coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Robert Delahunty, co-author along with John Yu of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, if you are a pastor, a ministry leader, anyone who works hard at your church, you are invited to join us for the KPDQ Pastors Masters. It's back for 2023. Coming up Monday, July the 17th at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora, just south of Wilsonville. 18-hole golf scramble starts at 8 with a light breakfast at 7 and a delicious lunch at around 12.30. Register now for this amazing event, $25. So please go to kpdq.com and join us. We want to bless you. Well, Anheuser-Busch, the CEO, refused to admit mistakes were made to cause the brand name to deteriorate as it has. And President Trump turned the tables and sued E. Jean Carroll for defamation. Former President uh, Trump countersued writer E. Jean Carroll on Tuesday, claiming in a court filing that Carroll defamed him on television. Last month, a New York jury found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carroll in a Manhattan department store in 1990s, but didn't find him liable for her alleged rape. Uh, Carroll was awarded $5 million in damages for her battery and defamation claims. The jury also found the former president had defamed Carroll by calling her claims a hoax and a con job. Democrats uh, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced online that another of his interviews has been removed from social media giant YouTube. Kennedy announced that his interview with former New York Post reporter Al Gaunt um, had been taken off the prominent video sharing platform. The Democrat challenger to the president in the 2024 primaries has already seen one of his interviews removed from YouTube due to an apparent violation of the website's vaccine misinformation policy. The Supreme Court ruled against racial discrimination, racial admissions, rather, policies, affirmative action. They handed down two related rulings regarding the race-based admissions policies used by Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. In both cases, the court found that schools violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. 
Writing the majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts explained the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in negative manner, involve race, uh, racial stereotyping and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admissions programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today. End quote. All the liberal justices dissented. Both rulings. University of Buffalo Law School is being sued for anti-white discrimination. The anti-racism group Equal Protection Project recently filed a lawsuit against the State University of New York's Buffalo School of Law over a special undergraduate program offering a to 20 students it contends is racially discriminatory. The program's brochure expressly states preference is given to students of color and first-generation college students. EPP founder William Jacobson argues the program's discrimination against white students violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. He notes we expect a law school to lead the way in upholding the anti-discrimination laws, not subvert them. That it took place at a flagship law school And the Sunni system is extremely troubling and may reflect a broader systematic Sunni problem where discrimination is tolerated or embraced so long as it comports with DEI ideology. President Biden jammed traffic and D.C. residents fumed. I mean, it's D.C. The president lives and works there. I'm not sure what there is to complain about, but Washington, D.C. metro residents were fit to be tied on Tuesday. It was in the evening as they endured an hours long traffic jam on the Beltway, thanks to the president's motorcade trip to a fundraiser in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Just a seven mile jaunt from the White House. Evidently, the anger over the road closure was so palatable that even doddering old Joe noticed it. And he commented that it made, um, well, a lot of people I won't quote verbatim, a lot of people mad, and it could cost him thousands of votes. Indeed, the Washington Post story covering the traffic jam, eliciting a flood of angry readers who posted such comments as, who's the geographically challenged idiot who came up with this this route? End quote. Shopping belt, or rather stopping beltway traffic during the rush hour, question mark, three times. However, given the uh, fact that uh, Biden won 91% of the vote in D.C. in 2020, losing a few thousand votes in the district, won't keep them awake at night, nor is it likely they'll remember a year from now. California's want out. It's bad news for Newsom. It's no secret that given the smoldering um, challenges uh, for the uh, the great state, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom has been positioning himself as a Democrat Party savior. Well, given California's opinion about the state of the Golden State, Newsom might want to reconsider. A recent poll conducted by California Opinion Survey found that a whopping 40 percent of residents are somewhat or very seriously considering moving out. According to the survey, the two leading reasons for wanting to leave were high cost of living and high crime. The baby formula shortage was the FDA's fault. It was a crisis that could easily have been averted, but for government bureaucracy. A year ago, new mothers across the country were scrambling to find baby formula as a sudden shortage hit the industry. The immediate cause of this crisis was one of the nation's leading formula producers, Abbott Nutrition, having its Michigan plant temporarily shut down by the FDA to investigate possible contamination. However, instead of recognizing that shutting down the plant would require supplementing the lost production with European manufacturers, the FDA 
FDA rather stuck with the crony capitalism and refused to greenlight the importation of formula from Europe. The problem is that even in admitting its role in causing the baby formula crisis, the FDA's solution is actually to create even more red tape for foreign companies to get approval to sell their products in the United States. Well, NASA has nixed its EV plane test flight forever, apparently. Well, it appears that folks won't be flying around in electric-powered airplanes anytime soon. On Wednesday, NASA announced it was ending its experimental X-57 electric aircraft program without it ever taking a single test flight. The reason for the decision had to do primarily with safety concerns. Yeah, you think? Unfortunately, we recently discovered a potential failure mode in the propulsion system that we determined to oppose an unacceptable risk to the pilot's safety and the safety of personnel on the ground during ground tests, explained the project director, Bradley Flick. Secondly, the budget and time needed to problem solve if those problems could be solved and continuing technological development for the aircraft effectively made it untenable. As uh, was noted, we have a design that would have uh, overcome the current difficulty that we've had. It's not been fully analyzed and reviewed yet. However, he then admitted whether there were other problems out there that we haven't discovered yet is unknown. The Board of Trustees at one of America's leading engineering schools, Purdue University, recently announced it had unanimously chosen Dr. Meng Chiang to uh, serve as the school's newest president for the past five years. He served as the school's dean of college uh, of, of engineering prior to Purdue. He was an engineering professor at Princeton University from December 2019 to 2020. He served in the uh, Trump administration as science and technology advisor to the secretary of state. He was born in Tianjin, China in 1977, immigrated to the U.S. via Hong Kong. Hunter Biden arrived for the deposition in the lawsuit from the laptop repair shop owner and House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer reiterated allegations of financial malfeasance by the president and his family in a Wednesday interview, elevating his previous claim that committee investigators had identified six policy decisions they believed Biden made in exchange for foreign cash, though he didn't elaborate as to what those decisions were. Biden um, shouted at a reporter asking about his involvement in Hunter's Chinese shakedown message. That was the phrase used by the reporter. And the Chinese spy craft used American technology to collect photos and videos as it flew overhead. President Biden tells reporters Vladimir Putin is clearly losing the war in Iraq in his latest gaffe. And thanks to Buttigieg, the U.S. has been hit with more mass flight cancellations ahead of the July 4th weekend. The federal debt is expected to soar, the CBO predicts, despite the GOP-led spending standoff. U.S. home prices posted the first annual decline in 11 years. NBC News covered for the uh, radical LGBT activists who chanted, "Come for your ch- they were coming for your children. And a federal judge blocked a Tennessee law protecting children from life-altering transgender procedures. A federal judge struck down Kentucky's ban on sex reassignment surgeries and cross-sex hormone therapies. And a landmark study shows suicide rates and mental illness is higher among transgenders, much higher, according to the study. Maine is legalizing abortion up to the moment of birth. And malaria cases in Florida and Texas mark the first U.S. spread since 2003. A top U.S. general Uh, has been arrested after Wagner Rebellion, and Russia axed its pledge to drop criminal charges against um, Prigozhin and began targeting mutiny sympathizers.
Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We have news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with Robert Delahunty, co-author with John Yu of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, controversial Supreme Court decisions about affirmative action announced earlier today. Big tech, social media, and the First Amendment are decided this summer. Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College was determined if uh, institutions of higher education can or cannot use race as a factor of admissions. That's been announced, but there are others that are still pending. Well, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court by John Yu and Robert Delahunty is a go-to guide to breaking down everything you need to know about the Supreme Court of the United States, or SCOTUS, past and present, to be an informed American. Written by law professors devoted to defending the Constitution, readers gain trustworthy expertise to make sense of the modern-day madness. Well, since the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court has been massively misunderstood by the mainstream media. Deliberately or out of ignorance? We'll leave that an open question. The court is returning to a firm constitutional ground and using facts to challenge the mainstream dominant view of the law. John Yu, a professor of law at UC Berkeley, and Robert J. Delahunty, a fellow at Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. They lay out why justices must defend the Constitution, how the Supreme Court became central to American politics, and how the court can either save the republic or jeopardize the entire legislative process. Well, here to talk to us about this uh, new volume is Robert Delahunty, again, a fellow of the, at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life in Washington, D.C. He um, held the Lejeune Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minneapolis until his retirement and has published widely in constitutional law. He served in the U.S. Department of Justice for 17 years, was Deputy General Counsel in the White House of the Homeland Security. He lives in southwestern Utah, but today we have him by phone to talk about the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us today of all days. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And yes, it is a big day. It is a big day. I'm an African-American. and I'm rejoicing that the decision was made because it levels the playing field. And I have enough confidence in minorities across the country to believe that we can aspire to and uh, attain uh, education and other positions without uh, what uh, affirmative action has provided, and that is an unlevel playing field. Your thoughts on this decision? Were you surprised, and do you think it was the right decision? Uh, no, I was not surprised. I'm very grateful that it turned out the way it did. And yes, I think it is unquestionably the right decision. Uh, and it is also one I completely agree with you, that African Americans and all Americans should rejoice in. And the country's greatest figure, in my opinion, greatest public figure is Justice Clarence Thomas, who is an African-American, who grew up in the segregated South in Georgia, and who wrote a special concurring opinion of his own in this case, in which he recalled his background in the segregated South as a, a youngster and as a young man. And he made exactly the point you have just made. Interestingly, what I'm hearing among many of the talking heads is, well, he benefited from affirmative action. Therefore, it's a a, a law, a position that should be retained. It, it's a bit wearying to hear that as sort of an excuse. Well, he could not have succeeded on his own, that every minority in this country really stands on the back of affirmative action, which, again, is somewhat insulting in that the presumption is you couldn't have done it uh, without it. Your thoughts on that? 
Yes, you know, I, I agree with you. It is insulting. It is condescending. Um, National Public Radio uh, some years ago had a fascinating film, uh, an interview, an extended interview with Justice Thomas. Uh, and this is a man of remarkable gifts and drive and determination and stamina. And he would have gone to the top at any time in any place. Um, and uh, no, he is not. He is not a beneficiary of affirmative action. Um, he is the beneficiary of his God-given talents, which he developed to the full. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. This is intended to help us better understand this third branch of government in light of the kind of uh, criticism and uh, changes that are being suggested around the culture when the Supreme Court doesn't rule in the way that some segments of the population would like it to. Why the um, uh, politically incorrect um, uh, title to this book in, in terms of helping us understand the Supreme Court in the 21st century? Well, it's part of a series called the Politically Incorrect Guides, which is published by Regnery. They needed one for the Supreme Court. And about a year ago, my friend and colleague, John Yu, and I decided we would like to fill that slot. We would like to write a book about the Supreme Court. Um, both of us have considerable expertise in this matter. John, at least, is one of the country's leading constitutional law scholars. Uh, we've both written about the Constitution extensively. Uh, we've both practiced for years in the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, and we wanted to defend the Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court, with a, a conservative majority, thanks to the former president. Uh, Donald Trump's three new appointments. We wanted to defend the court. We wanted to defend its vision of the law. Uh, we wanted to explain some of its inner workings. We wanted to make it more intelligible and comprehensible. And truly, uh, we wanted to rebut some of the unwarranted criticism uh, of its decisions. Of its decisions uh, so and of particular the members. of the book. Yeah, yeah. And of particular members, yes. That yeah. wasn't quite as acute or extreme a year ago as it is now, but yes. Uh, we want to defend them from, I mean, from events like, uh, you know, Senator Schumer standing on the steps of the Supreme Court during an oral argument in the case and threatening justices by name in front of a mob. This is a disgraceful performance, disgraceful for the Senate uh, majority leader. Uh, it certainly, uh, certainly is. Now, you referred to the court as conservative. Um, and can you explain uh, the, the two different views of how to interpret the Constitution, the originalists and those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can essentially be interpreted to mean whatever the times suggest? Yes, that's a really a great and fundamental question. Let me make clear right at the start. Um, for To speak about a conservative court doesn't mean to speak about a court that is politically mm -hmm. conservative. It's talking about a court that has a view of the law. That is conservative. And one of the great efforts of the current court is to separate and distinguish politics from law. OK, uh, many of its critics confound that distinction. Um, but the court is as often concerned with who has the right under the Constitution to make a policy call as it is with the question, what should the policy call be? OK, sometimes the court itself is the final decision maker, but sometimes it says it isn't. The voters are, or Congress is, or the states are, or whatever. That's a very fundamental distinction. So when you read things that say the court has come out a year ago uh, against abortion, that is false and misleading. The court did not take a position on abortion. It was not, it did not claim to be 
the final decision maker. It said the decision about abortion policy is not committed to us. It's committed to the people of the states and the state legislatures, or maybe to the federal Congress. We are not the right decision maker. And we're going to stop pretending that we are. Or let me give you another example. I know you've asked about the living constitution. I'll get to that in a second. Um, But a very simple example from this term. The state of California, uh, in a referendum, decided to ban the sale of pork in its grocery stores and supermarkets unless the pork was humanely bred and raised, the pigs. And they were sued by out-of-state pork producers, probably mostly in Iowa, where uh, it's an important industry. And the question comes up to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is not ruling on the merits or demerits of an animal uh, welfare law or on consumer protection. The question is, who makes this decision? Do we make it, we the court, or do the voters of California? And it said it's the latter. It's the voters of California. This is not a decision for us. They did not express a view about the wisdom of this animal welfare law. They just said, we are not the right decision makers. The state is. Now, as to your question about the living constitution, there are, in in fact, two views, two dominant views about how to interpret the constitution. One of them says, this is called originalism. One of them says, go back to the original meaning that the language in the Constitution had at the time it was adopted in 1787 or maybe after the Civil War. The main parts of the Constitution came in those two eras. Go back to the original public meaning, which was debated publicly at the time and discussed vigorously at the time. And that is the meaning that those words have now. Okay, that is how you understand it. And if that's been the law, and there are ways of changing the law if the people wish to have it changed, but they haven't done that with the parts of the Constitution we're talking about. They could amend the Constitution, but let's say they haven't. Okay, Then you read those words in the original public meaning that they had when they were adopted and ratified into law. The other view of the Constitution uh, stems from political progressivism. It's the idea that the Constitution is very flexible, very organic. It grows, it changes, its meaning shifts with time. And ultimately, this is a formula for rule by the courts, as distinct from rule by the people. And that's a very dangerous idea, it seems to me. It's also a self-defeating idea. I mean, let's take abortion. Uh, The Roe versus Wade decision Um, saying that there is a constitutional right to abortion came down maybe 45 or 50 years ago in 1973. That's roughly half a century ago. Who is to say that the Constitution hasn't lived since then to the point where Roe versus Wade has to be rolled back? Maybe the fear in the 1970s was overpopulation. Maybe now there's a fear of underpopulation or or the failure to reproduce. Um, And so the court should... Um, make the Constitution live and breathe, and that requires reversing row. It's a self-defeating view, the living constitutional view of the Constitution. It gives the judges a free hand to make policy. And they're not policymakers. They're lawyers. We're talking this afternoon about the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. 
Uh, Robert Delahunty is my guest. We'll continue that conversation in a moment, but do need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are talking about the latest edition of the Politically Incorrect Guide series, this one on the Supreme Court. Uh, certainly uh, these this day and the next few days are going to be uh, very interesting as the court releases some of its uh, more high-profile decisions. So it's certainly timely that we uh, reflect on this book to help us better understand the court itself and the decisions uh, that they're making and the authority that they're given in the Constitution for uh, making those decisions. You made a, a, a reference to um, Dick Schumer a few moments ago. The president today, uh, in referring to the decision made on affirmative action by the Supreme Court, said this is not the last word, which, of course, it is. Um, has the, the court been politicized uh, at least um, recently, and the expectation is that in the absence of uh, legislative will, that oftentimes things are left for the courts to make decisions that politicians don't have the uh, the guts to make. Uh, how, how have we come to misunderstand and misinterpret the role of the Supreme Court in the separation of powers in terms of interpreting the Constitution rather than affirming the direction the country might go on a political uh, standpoint? Well, the court has been politicized, but it's been politicized largely by the media. And I'm sorry to say, by one of our two great parties, the Democratic Party, uh, the court is trying honestly and conscientiously to interpret the law in a fair and nonpartisan way. And look, some of its decisions in recent days have demonstrated that. Uh, It has handed down decisions in a case, for example, from North Carolina, the so-called independent legislature theory that is at least widely perceived to be inimical to the interests of the Republican Party in the next presidential election. It's handed down a decision from Alabama uh, in a Voting Rights Act case uh, that uh, is at least commonly understood to be inimical to the interests of the Alabama Republican Party. Um, It's handed down a decision about immigration control at the border in which it refused even to hear a suit brought against the Biden administration by the state of Texas. So the court is trying to uh, go straight down the line and to disregard political differences. I'm afraid it's people like President Biden who are politicizing these issues. Um, You also mentioned that uh, there's a kind of pass the buck view. It's quite prevalent, I'm sorry to say, in the Biden administration, which um, you know, it it um, tries to make up the law on its own without proper reference to Congress, without reliance on congressional authorization. And then when the court strikes down what the administration has done, it finds fault with the court. The court is not setting policy, for example, about um, vaccinations. Uh, it's not setting policy about moratoria on evicting tenants uh, during covid that's not its job. It's 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 saying you can have any policy on these matters you want, but you have to have congressional support for it. Otherwise, why have a Congress? And, you know, sometimes these uh, administrative and executive decisions are made with a view to ducking a responsibility. The language of a statute is written so vaguely that it can be interpreted in different ways. And members of Congress running for re-election can say, well, don't blame me uh, if this injures your interests or your property. This is how the bureaucracy interpreted it. And the court is trying to monitor that kind of behavior, too, and to 
make Congress step up to the plate and write laws that are clear and make tough policy calls. I, I think this is a praiseworthy, laudable. Yeah, yeah. We tend to think of the, the current sitting Supreme Court. How important is us is it for us to understand the Supreme Court, what its constitutional role is, uh, in, again, with the in mind the separation of powers, uh, understanding the history of the court, decisions that were made, decisions that were overturned? Uh, well, the, the framers of our country distilled really centuries of experience um, in uh, Great Britain and here uh, before the revolution and then after in the states. Uh, and they created a government of three branches, and they were supposed to be equal to each other, and they had different functions, and they had different prerogatives. And one of the three, probably the least understood by the general public, is the judicial branch. Uh, and it was supposed to the executive, uh, and certainly Congress, were not supposed to be able to apply the law directly to the people. Um, it had to go through the judicial branch, and the judicial branch had the right to um, – to reject a law if it did not square up with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And this has been essential to preserving uh, American liberty, individual liberty, for over two centuries and to bringing about the enormous prosperity that this country enjoys because there are rights. Uh, The courts will protect your property rights as well as your other civil rights. Um, So judicial independence and the ability of a court to act fearlessly uh, without political pressure, without fear of intimidation or recrimination. That's essential to American freedoms. Justice Scalia used to say what is more important even than the Bill of Rights, than individual guarantees of individual rights, is the structure of our federal union. And the court is an essential, indispensable part of the structure of our government. It's one of the three branches. And it has to be independent of political influence from Biden or Schumer or anybody else, Donald Trump, whoever it may be. It has to be independent of them all uh, so that all of our freedoms are protected. You um, outline in the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court um, an overrule wish list. What are some of the top cases you'd like to see corrected? So when the, uh, the book was finished... Um, uh, the court had not, of course, decided the case that came down today. Uh, but certainly we were hoping that it would reverse course on affirmative action in higher education. And it has done that. And that is a major um, decision. You know, it's interesting when you uh, think about affirmative action. The court has prohibited it to both the state and federal governments in every area of society except one higher education. That was a carve-out. That was treated differently. But, for example, in giving uh, broadcasting licenses or other federal benefits, uh, the government had to act in a race-neutral way. It couldn't look at your race and decide to tilt the scales in your favor. The exception was higher education. That exception has been closed today. And that is something, as we were saying right at the start, Um, That is, uh, I think, a very welcome um, development to all Americans because it it underscores the fact that in this country, in this country, we have one race, and that's American. Okay, That's how you're judged by the law. How significant was the the information leak prior to the overturn of Roe versus Wade and the danger posed to individual members of the Supreme Court? 
It was a shattering thing. It was a shameful thing to have done. Uh, it is dismaying, and it is to me incomprehensible why they have not yet discovered mm-hmm. the leaker. Um, uh, and maybe they have and choose not to reveal who it was for, again, who knows what reason. Um, but Justice, uh, Justice Alito said something very interesting a while ago about the leak. He said two things. Um, he said, first of all, um, he thinks he knows who did it. But he said, I don't have sufficient evidence um, to give me the confidence in identifying someone um, that I would need to go public. Um, so he has uh, you know, reasonable suspicions. Uh, he thinks he knows who it is, but uh, very circumspectly, he will not finger anybody. Um, but it may be that the leaker is not. And then the second thing he says is that it was outrageous that he and people, other justices on the court, conservative justices, were accused of leaking it. Uh, and he said, why would we ever have <laughs> done that? Mm-hmm. Because it put our lives in danger. And why would we have been so foolish as to do that? And, you know, their lives were in danger. There were uh, demonstrations and protests outside their homes. And there was an assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh. And to its shame, the U.S. Department of Justice, where I worked for 17 years, uh, did not enforce the federal law that says that the justices are entitled to protection in their homes. Um, So uh, the whole process of the pushback against the Dobbs case, it was outrageous. It really was. The lives of the justices were at risk. Uh, The leak uh, has never been, um, uh, the source of it has never been identified. Uh, And and the whole thing has, I think, sown dissension and mistrust in the court itself. We need to have a a functioning uh, Supreme Court with the justices, despite their disagreements, can get along as colleagues. We're talking about the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. I wonder if you would be available to stay with us for one more segment. You bet. Okay, just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Robert Delahunty, co-author along with John Yu, of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. It is timely and certainly helps us better understand what the purpose of the Supreme Court is and to understand some of the controversies that we're currently uh, facing. My guest has agreed to stay with us for a few more minutes, and I so appreciate that. Let me ask you what you think the future of the court looks like with regard to religious business owners as another decision that we're awaiting a, a final um, announcement on as uh, as it relates to LGBT celebrations to violate the beliefs of artists and communicators, for example. Uh, that's a decision that will surely come down tomorrow. Uh, and it uh, did originate as a a question of um, religious rights. Uh, But the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, has decided to sever the religion side of the case and make it a free speech case. So it will not directly implicate um, the right of uh, uh, the owner of a firm, a small firm, to decline to do um, web designs for same-sex weddings um, because of her religious faith. Uh, what's at issue right now is the narrower question of her First Amendment free speech rights to express or choose not to express um, certain themes 
in her art or in her web designing. There is a major uh, religion case decided today. It's kind of been cast in the shadow Mm -hmm. by the Harvard decision, but it is about religious rights in the workplace. And the court unanimously, it must be said, struck a blow in favor of religious believers by saying that uh, their employers have a legal obligation to accommodate their beliefs. uh, And um, even if it's substantial cost to the employers to make um, those arrangements. So, you know, if your um, your employer feeds you lunch, and you're Jewish or Muslim, uh, and it only offers pork, it's got to offer you an alternative to pork. Uh, if you're a Muslim, it has to, uh, unless it's a really substantial cost of the business, allow you to pray regularly several times during the workday, and so on. This was a case involving a Christian who wanted worked in the post office who wanted to practice his faith on Sunday and couldn't because of post office demands. Well, even if it is a substantial cost to the post office, it has to make an accommodation for that uh, religious believer. That's an important decision. Made earlier today. What about the future of of, uh, gun control? Um, Well, um, there are now three decisions uh, going back to 2008 that affirm that the Second Amendment to the Constitution, part of the Bill of Rights, which protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms, that that is meaningful. It will be enforced. It is not an orphan. It stands on the same level as freedom of speech or freedom of religion or any of the other items in the Bill of Rights. Uh, And the court is saying uh, gun control, reasonable gun control regulation is, of course, permitted, um, but um, a wholesale clampdown on the use, on the possession or, or carriage of weapons, that is not possible. For example, you can regulate, the state can regulate guns so that you can't carry them into a courtroom, but it can't say the whole island of Manhattan, you can't carry a gun, right? There's, it's got to be a reasonable um, restriction based on actually historical customary practice about gun, gun control. What do you think about the criticism of Justice Thomas and other justices for failing to report gifts from wealthy friends? Is this an ethics violation or is this just another effort to undermine uh, the uh, integrity and reputation of members of the court? It's the latter. Uh, It's transparently the latter because tell me the rule, the ethics rule that they are supposed to have violated. And I'm not the only one to ask that. Professor Stephen Carter who's a liberal Democrat professor at the Yale School of Law, asked exactly the same question about two weeks ago. Show me the rule. What rule have they violated? No, no. This is the sort of other strategy as opposed to packing the court. This is the strategy of slenderizing the court to try to force out uh, some of the justices, the conservative justices, um, by by insisting that they recuse themselves from certain cases so as to thin out the conservative majority. I'm sorry, but I'm very cynical about these accusations. Um, I have no problem with a fair and free press investigating um, members of the Supreme Court, just as they should investigate the White House, though they don't, or, or Congress, like Nancy Pelosi, though they don't. Um, but this is, this is well beyond a fair, objective analysis of what the justices have done. It's a smear campaign. It's designed to punish them for their decision in Dobbs and to intimidate them in future cases, period. It's as simple as that. 
What are your thoughts on the future of the court? Not so much as in terms of its makeup, conservative or liberal or decisions that are coming down the pike, but the politicization of the court, um, uh, suggestions that are being made by politicians about how to influence the future direction of the court. Your thoughts on uh, on the politicization in, in terms of of uh, how the court should be viewed and allowed to function. Uh, the court is best left to itself, to police itself. It is on these look, all nine of them are honest, honorable, smart, hardworking people. They have different views. Great. There are 340 million Americans. We all have different views. They reflect that. Uh, I think it's a question of public trust and public confidence. And I think we ought to have more trust and more confidence in these men and women because they're fine people. Uh, and they, their independence, their freedom from politics should not be compromised. It is extremely dangerous for all of us if they are supposed to track the polls or listen to what some senator is saying. No, they have life tenure as long as they have good behavior. They can be removed by impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors, but that is it. They are a co-equal branch on the same level as the president or Congress, and the president and Congress should they're free to criticize the court. Of course they are, and it's decisions. But they should not do what is happening now, which is to make this a political struggle. The court is not in that game. Do you expect the, confirm- the confirmation process to, to change, to reflect that? Or will it continue to be a political circus as it has increasingly become? It will gradually change because with its conservative majority, the court is getting out of areas where it had no business to be in the first place. Uh, There won't be a controversy over where the court should go on Roe versus Wade any longer because Roe is not on the books and it's not going to be resuscitated. So I hope that as the court gradually steps further and further away from the policymaking arena and confines itself more and more strictly to law, nominations will become less controversial. Well, one certainly looks forward to that. Again, the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. On the cover, William Howard Taft is uh, uh, is quoted, presidents come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. And that certainly uh, seems to be the case. Are you optimistic about the future, uh, not just of the Supreme Court as it functions, because it will, but that the American people, perhaps through uh, guides like this one, will better understand what to expect from the court and have uh, less fury about how it functions in making major decisions. Look, I'm a conservative, and I have been since I was a child, and that makes me pessimistic about the future, about <laughs> everything. It sort of goes with the territory. But, you know, whatever may happen to our wonderful country and its institutions, and in my 76 years, they have changed a lot, some ways very much of the better, other ways not so good. Uh, I'm going to stand and fight. Um, for what I believe in and what I think this country ought to be. Even if I lose, I lose. At least I'm going down with all guns blazing. There you go. Well, Robert Delahunty, thank you so much for the book, along with your co-author, John Yu, and for talking with us here today. Appreciate it very much. I did. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I hold in my aging black hand a can of pop. It's a zero sugar root beer, 12 ounces, no caffeine. Feeling pretty good about myself. Zero, Zero calorie, zero fat, zero carbs, zero sugar, <laughs> 
this is pretty good. Zero protein. In other words, it has absolutely no nutritional value and it's low in sodium. Well, article artificial sweetener used in thousands of products reportedly to be labeled possibly carcinogenic to humans. Now, this doesn't come as a complete surprise. I think we all know that these artificial sweeteners are not nutritional. They don't add anything of benefit, but we hoped that we could enjoy the sweetness of sugar without the downside. Well, this is what the um, health editor says. A popular artificial sweetener used in thousands of products worldwide, including Diet Coke, ice cream, chewing gum, is to be declared a possible cancer risk to humans, according to reports. Again, it doesn't come as a complete surprise, but I think many of us were hopeful. The World Health Organization Cancer Research Arm, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, it's the IARC, has conducted a safety review of aspartame and will publish a report next month. It's preparing to label the sweetener as possibly carcinogenic to humans. I'm not sure what that means, possibly. Uh, They would, uh, or rather, that would mean there is some evidence linking aspartame to cancer, but that it's limited. The organization, the IARC, has two more serious categories, probably carcinogenic to humans and carcinogenic to humans. So possibly, probably, and absolutely. Well, the move is likely to prove controversial. The IARC has faced criticism for causing alarm about hard-to-avoid substances or situations, of course, Aspartame is only hard to avoid if you like sweets and avoid sugar. It previously put working um, uh, overnight and consuming red meat into the probably cancer-causing class and listed using mobile phones as possibly cancer-causing. Now, that may be true, but it's been controversial. The IARC safety review was conducted to access whether or not aspartame is a potential hazard. Based on all the published evidence, a person familiar with the matter told The Guardian. However, it doesn't take into account how much of a product a person can safely consume. Now, I've got one can here. I've got several others in my refrigerator here. I'll probably have another one or two next week. Is that enough? That advice comes from a separate World Health Organization expert committee on food additives, the joint FAO slash WHO expert committee on food additives, Uh, which uh, has also been reviewing our aspartame use this year. Uh, It's due to announce its finding on the same day as the IARC makes public its decision on the 14th of July, guaranteed to confuse everyone. IARC has assumed the potential carcinogenic efforts uh, effect rather of aspartame hazard identification and IARC spokesperson confirmed Following this, the joint FAO World Health Organization Expert Committee on Food Additives will update its risk assessment exercise on aspartame, including reviewing the um, acceptable daily intake and dietary exposure assessment for the sweetener or the artificial sweetener. The result of both evaluations will be made available together on the 14th of July. So if you're interested, mark your calendars. That's coming out. Aspartame has been widely used since the 1980s as a tabletop sweetener and in products like diet fizzy drinks, like my A&W zero sugar root beer, no caffeine. And in products um, like chewing gum, breakfast cereals and cough drops, uh, it's authorized for use globally by regulators who have reviewed all the available evidence and major food and beverage makers have for decades defended their use of it. Well, the food industry expressed serious concern about the report on Thursday. IARC is not a food safety body. 
That's what the Secretary General of the International Sweeteners Association says. There's an International Sweeteners Association. I should be in that organization. Aspartame, I've got a, quite a sweet tooth. Aspartame is one of the most thoroughly researched ingredients in history, they say, with over 90 food safety agencies across the globe declaring it as safe, including the European Food Safety Authority, which conducted the most comprehensive safety evaluation of aspartame to date. Now, we should all take some comfort in that, except that sometimes they're wrong. And you find out, you know, years later, oh, we were wrong. It does cause fill in the blank. Well, the International Council of Beverages Association Executive Director Kate Lotman suggested the move could needlessly mislead consumers into consuming more sugar rather than choosing safe, no and low sugar options. Unless, of course, it's carcinogenic. Well, there is existing evidence that raises questions about the potential impact of aspartame on cancer risk. A study in France involving more than 100,000 adults last year suggested those who consumed larger amounts of artificial sweeteners, including aspartame, had a slightly higher cancer risk, a cancer risk. And this is large amounts. Um, A study from uh, Ramazzini Institute in Italy in the early 2000s, reported that some cancers in mice and rats were linked to aspartame. Well, the Guardian understands the IARC collected 7,000 research references to the, the uh, sweetener and included 1,300 studies in the package of materials assessed by experts. We really need to wait and see the full IARC evaluation before we can make any firm conclusions, a professor of chemistry at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, suggests. Without that, we really are shooting in the dark. Well, Professor Kevin McConway, Emeritus Professor of Applied Statistics at the Open University, said the IARC label as being possibly carcinogenic doesn't mean that a substance actually presents a risk to humans in normal circumstances. The question, of course, for me is, what's a normal circumstance? One can of pop a week, five a day? What does that mean? Well, the more important finding would be what uh, JECFA, that's another acronym, concluded about aspartame intake. He said back in 1981, they established an acceptable daily intake of aspartame of 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day. Well, that certainly clears it up for me. 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day to consume over that limit would require a very large daily consumption of diet Coke or similar drinks. Well, on the 14th of July, Jeffka Uh, may change that risk assessment, or they may not. In other words, we know absolutely nothing and are less um, informed, except that a decision has been made, will be announced on the 14th, and we may or may not make adjustments to our consumption of the artificial sweetener, aspartame. Thought I was doing good with my A&W zero sugar root beer, no caffeine. I'll get back to you and let you know. Well, tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to release some additional decisions promising to be just about as controversial as today. Not quite, but as nearly as much. We'll also share the week's um, Christian outlook and take a look at the lighter side of the news, if, if time permits. There's a lot coming down the pike. We may forego that tomorrow for that reason, but we'll make that decision tomorrow. I want to thank James Blend for producing, who, by the way, is going to be on vacation for the next couple of weeks, and Dave King for engineering today's program, who is stalwart and will be here. Anyway, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great long weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.